we are discussing the U.S. role in the Middle East in the age of coronavirus. Uh, as Seta Washington, we organized this event with um, General Mark Kimmett um, and uh, Mike Doran of uh, Hudson Institute. Um, so we appreciate for the for appreciate their accepting this uh, uh, to speak in this event and. I think um, this is part of a series of events that we are trying to organize on the U.S. role uh, globally, internationally, uh, in the wake of the coronavirus. Uh, there's a lot of discussions about the uh, um, U.S. Uh, global role um, or their lack of it uh, in terms of leadership in the coronavirus environment and what's gonna happen with the US foreign policy going forward, what happens uh, in the relations with China, what happens in the Middle East. Uh, in this session, we are focusing on the Middle East and uh, we feel privileged to have General Mark Kimmett and Mike Doran to discuss these issues. I just wanna um, start uh, with General Kimmett. Um, he has, uh, recently authored a piece titled, um, Is COVID-19 America's East of Suez Moment? Um, which essentially warns against retreat from the region due to the economic toll of the coronavirus and uh, the tendency in, in these post-crisis moments for the US to try to reduce its, its regional footprint. Um, General Kimmett, uh, perhaps you can start with sort of explaining that argument in that article uh, and anything else you would like to say as an introduction. Please go ahead. Thank you. First, dear, thanks for bringing us together. And it's always a pleasure to work with my good friend, Mike Duran. We have been joking with each other now for about the last 15 years. So uh, any barbs that Mike are done with a great amount of affection and respect. Uh, I'm going to just read from this paper, a short version of the paper that I wrote regarding this presumptuous, uh, this notion that somehow COVID-19 is going to change the world as we know. Um, and I want to start with a historical analogy, the East of Suez decision that was made by the British in 1967. In 1967, Great Britain was facing huge trade deficits, declining productivity, increasing budget deficits and a devaluation of the pound. The Labor Party Defense Review reduced the Minister of Defense budget to 2 billion pounds, scrapped aircraft carriers, economized on their NATO commitments, and increasingly relied on a strategy of nuclear deterrence. Uh, another casualty of the review was the enormously expensive East of Suez policy. Military commitments in Bahrain, Yemen, Malaysia, and Hong Kong cost 330,000 million pounds a year, as compared to only 250 million for its broad NATO commitments. Given the financial imperatives and increasing Soviet threat and repeated domestic guns and butter debate, the British took the difficult policy choice to withdraw British forces from Bahrain, Yemen, and Malaysia all those areas of Su east of the Suez, marking the end of significant military commitments to both the Near and Far East, except for that of Hong Kong. 
Now, some of Mike Duran's fellow think tankers, such as Corey Shockey at AEI and Robert Kaplan at the Eurasia Group, suggest that COVID may push the U.S. into a similar East of Suez decision in the Middle East. Certainly, there are similarities between our situation and that faced by the British in 67. The British, the U.S. decision would be the convergence of a host of factors and three stand out. Waning public support for the cost and consequences of Middle East operations, fewer national interests in the region, and the extraordinary costs incurred by the U.S. government in the light of the COVID-19 pandemic. But diminishing public support for Middle East operations is not new. Since the election of Barack Obama in 2008 and uh, Donald Trump in 2016, there's been little support for the foundational Carter Doctrine of 1980, which the U.S. committed to the use of military force to defend our interests in the Middle East. Though Obama, the war in Iraq was a mistake from its outset, and Trump has been equally critical of deploying most forces from northern Syria, reducing troop commitments in Iraq, and pressing for a once unthinkable peace deal with the Taliban. His views were summed up in a comment on 6 April. We're wasting all our money in the Middle East. What we've done is so crazy. We're in the Middle East for $8 trillion, and if you want to fix a pothole on a highway, you can't. The national interests of the, U in the, of the U.S. in the Middle East are far less existential than in years past. The U.S. is now self-sufficient in energy resources, and a significant warming of relations with Israel within the region has led to increased stability among former adversaries. Relative to the threats from China, from a revanchist Russia, and from a host of non-state actors, instability in the Middle East ranks far lower than in years past. The threat of significant terrorist attacks are diminished and have evolved dramatically as homegrown violent extremists, domestic violence extremists, are considered far more proximate. Some say the cost of the COVID-19 pandemic will be the inflection point. In 1967, the financial price of the pandemic will likely cause a reassessment of national priorities. These costs are staggering. Some 22 million Americans filed for unemployment in the past four weeks, compared to the record in 1982 of only 700,000. 30 times more people have filed for unemployment than at the post at the previous 1982 record. Tax revenues from individuals and corporations will be a fraction. Government programs to address this economic blow are estimated to range from six to $10 trillion, half the annual GDP of the US, and increase the national debt by at least 50%. Even when COVID-19 is no longer a health crisis, a follow-on economic crisis is inevitable. In light of this, government belt tightening will be imperative, as it's unlikely that the economy will be able to grow its way out. Offsetting government expenditures will be obligatory and military ops in the Middle East will almost certainly be a major target. Now, I wouldn't make the argument, I wouldn't set up a straw man unless I was ready to knock it down. And despite the obvious similarities to 67, it'd be rash to conclude that the pandemic is akin to Britain's financial collapse in the 1960s or that COVID-19 marks an end to American involvement in the region, whether as a result policies or pandemics. <clears throat> While it's true that enthusiasm for foreign wars has plummeted, support for world engagement in general and in the region is strong. 
Well, it's become fashionable to argue that the U.S. is retrenching or withdrawing or abandoning the order. Few polls demonstrate that point. Even the recent calls for fewer immigrants or less dependence on forest supply chains do not necessarily infer that Americans are becoming more isolationists. The desire for engagement may reflect a common sense realization that the Middle East still matters. While vital national interests in the region may be less so than in years past, the region is still important, still dangerous, and still threatens the U.S. Terrorist groups, while not as capable as Al-Qaeda or ISIS, are taking advantage of weak state control and metastasize into almost every country in the region. And more dangerously, they're exporting hardened fighters around the world. Oil is less important for the U.S., but is still needed by the rest of the world economy. State collapse is increasing as countries are experiencing massive population explosions and urbanization without the means to adequately address their consequences. Many would say, so what? Why is this a U.S. problem to solve? And the answer is simple. If the pandemic has shown us anything, it's that two oceans and friendly neighbors uh, can't keep out the rest of the world. What goes the argument? At what cost? What are the $8 trillion Trump said the U.S. has squandered in the Middle East, which might have been spent on infrastructure, education, or health care? Look, while those sunk costs are significant, analysis of those costs recognize that an overwhelming percentage of them were operational, fuel, ammunition, life support, and those massive costs will abate significantly as extensive military operations conclude. What will remain are infrastructure and personnel, mostly rotational units whose size will grow and shrink as needed and whose annual costs are a fraction of the former conflicts in Iraq and Afghanistan. Additionally, further cost efficiencies will be achieved by the geographical offsetting through the use of drones controlled from Nevada, long-range air platforms launched from Missouri, and cyber ops conducted in Maryland, all of which can be shared among the other priority theaters. Unlike Great Britain in 68, whose withdrawal from Bahrain, Singapore, and Egypt, uh, and Yemen had little strategic impact, U.S. withdrawal from the region would reverberate worldwide. It would create a vacuum quickly filled by the Russians and the Chinese, and we would abandon longstanding allies to others, and without the stabilizing impact of a comprehensive U.S. effort, might ignite more regional conflict. Our withdrawal would lead energy resources, shipping routes, and alliances to those countries more willing to establish a presence in the region and would certainly lead to decreased stability and increased threats to U.S. national interests. There will be many that see the COVID-19 pandemic as a catalyst or an opportunity to reduce a robust U.S. presence in the Middle East. They might agree with President Trump's aspiration to let somebody else fight over this long, bloodied sand or his view that U.S. needs to make difficult financial choices and potholes take priority. A few would dispute the numerous risks to U.S. national security, including terrorism, encroachment by Russia and China, regional conflicts, control of economically critical waterways, threat to allies, potential state collapse, threat from Iran, and a host of other seen and unseen challenges. It would be naive and dangerous to adopt the policy of retrenchment as it would have the same impact on U.S. worldwide influence as it did in the United Kingdom. It was easier for the United Kingdom as they could count on the U.S. to fill the vacuum. But should the U.S. withdraw, the vacuum will not be filled by our allies. So maintaining a presence and influence in the region will require continued popular support, 
a willingness to protect American interests and strong arguments in the face of other costly defense and security priorities. One can only hope that COVID-19 pandemic does not result in a self-defeating East of Suez policy for the U.S. I'll take it that's your introduction, General Kimmett. That's, that's uh, all I'm going to say. <laughs> Good. Um, so, um, Mike, um, as you heard, uh, General Kimmett is making a strong argument against retrenchment and retreat from the region. Uh, and, um, but, you know, as because of the economic toll of COVID-19, we are going to have a lot more budgetary constraints. There will be pressures to reduce uh, budgets, perhaps even of uh, defense budget. Um, do you think, and Trump wants to bring troops home uh, as well. Um, and there was an agreement with Taliban in Afghanistan, for instance, to enable that. And then he wants to pull out of Iraq eventually as well. Um, how do you see um, withdrawal discussions in line with uh, what General just said about overall uh, U.S. retrenchment from the retreat from the region and what the implications might be of that. Well, uh, thanks, Cotter. Thanks for having me, and uh, uh, thanks, Mark. Thanks for uh, for uh, joining me in this, and thanks for that uh, very uh, thought-provoking article, um, with which I am in large agreement. But I, I guess I would just emphasize a couple of um, specific points, and and maybe quibble with a couple things with. Uh, uh, with Mark, um, let me start with the uh, with the points that I, that I would emphasize. Um, I think that there are two results of this. There are going to be two results of this um, crisis that are very clear to me, and then some some possibilities that are fuzzier. So the the two things that I think are clear to me is one. We're going, to ha we're going to come out of this crisis with an intensified U.S.-China competition. I, I think that, uh, that we were moving in that direction anyway. Uh, and uh, I think that now the dangers of this uh, uh, kind of open-ended engagement that we had with China, um, this, ex this kind of uh, end of history expectation that we had that China was going to uh, uh, through economic engagement with the West was going to uh, liberalize um, and, and that we were going to be able to uh, arrive at a strategic accommodation without, uh, without having to really um, think long and hard about competition with China. I think all of that is going to be gone and we're going to see ourselves in a very serious competition. Um, how serious? It's not clear. It's not clear to me. I don't know that it's going to be an out-and-out -out cold war like it was with the Soviet Union, but we're, we're, it, it, the competition with China is going to be a, a much clearer strategic principle for the United States, I think. The other thing that I think is obvious, uh, to me at least, or, uh, uh, is uh, that uh, Iran is going to be severely weakened by, by this crisis. It already has been se severely weakened. Uh, this crisis on top of the maximum pressure campaign that, uh, that Donald Trump has been, um, ha has been conducting. Uh, I think that um, 
at no time in its, I think this is the biggest uh, crisis that the Iranian regime has ever had in its history. Um, and I think at no time have we seen it so obviously weak. Now, the Iranians are very good at trying to make themselves look strong and unperturbable, um, and they're, they're, they're making an effort now. But for the first time, you can really see them openly making the effort to try to shore things up. Uh, and this crisis is hitting them uh, at home and also abroad. They are, um, they're, they're losing legitimacy uh, at home. Uh, significantly and that's on top of what we already saw you know in november we saw the worst um the worst um uh protests that they have ever uh that the regime has ever experienced in every city every ethnic group uh every uh, uh every class of people was involved in those protests that was totally unprecedented um and now we're seeing i think yet yet uh even even within uh, the regime's loyal base, we're seeing um, cracks, not serious, not severe cracks, but some cracks and, um, uh, and eroding legitimacy. Now, as for the United States, uh, I agree uh, with, the, with the general analysis of, uh, uh, of Mark um, that uh, a whole host of factors are going to keep us engaged in, in the Middle East, exactly as he said. But I do think that the pressures to um, the pressures to pull back the American troop commitment um, are going to are going to increase. Um, and what I think is going to happen, uh, or at least what I would argue should happen for sure, but I think it will. I think we can already see it happening, is that the U.S. is going to go back to a more uh, traditional understanding of international politics as being a game of states and balancing states against states. Now, why, why do I put it that way? Because after 9-11 and, and, uh, and then uh, after the Arab Spring, the U.S. Uh, started seeing non-state actors in some regards as more important to it than, than, than state actors. Um, and no relationship suffered more from that conception than the U.S.-Turkish relationship, uh, because the United States saw um, uh, first Al-Qaeda and then the Islamic State as the major strategic uh, problem in the region. Um, and, it, and it turned to the, to the YPG um, as the answer to that, that problem, and in the process uh, uh, undermined the, the, the strategic framework in which it had been operating with, uh, with Turkey. Um, as the U.S. is under increasing pressure uh, to decrease its, its um, uh, operations on the ground in the Middle East, and yet continues to see competition with countries like China as important to it, I think that it's going to, it's going to um, uh, uh, rediscover the importance of the U.S.-Turkish uh, Turkish relationship, um, and also just a building a, a system of states, uh, a, a coalition of states um, in, in the region that can help it to counterbalance, to counterbalance China and uh, look after those interests that are going to continue to be there that Mark described uh, so eloquently. Thank you, Mike. Um, I just want to maybe um, clarify something. Um, so if, if, if the U.S. will try to reduce the military footprint and come to realize 
the importance of state actors as opposed to sub-state actors. Um, in that case, um, you wouldn't consider that, um, uh, wouldn't that be more multilateralist and, and Trump may not necessarily go that route. His instincts are more bilateral one-on-one -on -one relationships. Well, I think it would be, uh, you know, in, in, in the Middle East, what does multilateralism mean? It, it, it always means uh, a, uh, a series of intersecting bilateral U.S. relationships. So, um, you know, we're, we're very familiar in this region that our allies don't get along with each other. So the three, mm -hmm. the three most important ones are, are in, 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 by my reckoning, are uh, at this time are uh, Israel, Turkey, and, and Saudi Arabia, and I, I don't, I don't need to you know, go over with yeah, this yeah. this group the the tensions that exist within that triangle. It's it's our job, it's our job, uh, the the job of the United States that is to uh, uh, to present to those uh, allies and to others as well. You know. Yeah, Egypt, Jordan, the UAE, all of Bahrain, uh, a, a general vision of order in the region um, to come to an agreement bilaterally with each, uh, with each one of those states of how our relations are, gonna, are, gonna, um, uh, are, are going to achieve that order, uh, and then to be a kind of mediator and shock absorber between between the other elements of the system. All right, thank you. General uh, Kimmet, uh, did you have any responses to what Mike said already? Um, no, but what Mike did do is cause me to think about something, which is, uh, is the question, uh, what will the US do internally as a response to COVID-19 or what must, COVID, what must the U.S. do in response to the effect of COVID-19 in these very fragile states, whether it's Iran, whether it's Iraq, whether it's some of the other countries that inevitably will become more unstable, unstable not simply because of COVID-19, but in the fall in oil prices that we're seeing that are, that are kneecapping some countries like Iraq. I mean, Iraq right now doesn't have the ability with its budget to pay its workers, uh, its government workers. And given that the, the, the fundamental argument of the protesters in Iraq has been, where's my government job? Uh, there, between COVID-19 and the uh, oil prices, I mean, it's the perfect storm in those countries. And should the US withdraw as a result or should the US double down as a requirement? Okay, Mike. Oh, uh, uh, I, I'm sorry. I didn't realize that was a question to me. Uh, and uh, based on his uh, comments, I thought maybe you would have something. But let me let me uh, move on to my uh, list of questions. Uh, one of the things you actually already brought uh, brought up, Mike, is the conflict potential for. Um, uh, like Iran's position, Iran's weakening in the region. As you know, there have been, you know, sort of humanitarian arguments for um, giving Iran some sanctions relief in the 
COVID-19 environment. And, uh, and then there are those who argue that this is actually the time to increase pressure on Iran. Um, uh, it's an opportune time. Um, so what do you think about that dichotomy? Um, and where do you land on that, on that uh, question? Uh, I, I'm always, uh, I, I'm always very easy to predict on, on that question. Um, I, I think the number one goal of the United States in the Middle East uh, is to weaken Iran. Uh, the, uh, and uh, I think that um, they are in the worst, the Islamic Republic is in the worst crisis in its history. There's no way it can turn this crisis around to its advantage. In the past, it has done so. You know, the, the, I think the second worst crisis it was in was in the 1980s uh, due to the Iran-Iraq war. Uh, and, but they were able to use the war. Um, they were able to use the war to mobilize population and eliminate pockets of anti-regime um, sentiment in the, in, in, in the country. There's no way they can turn this around. I think they are, they have really lost, uh, uh, the legitimacy deficit is at the highest it's ever, um, uh, it's ever been. Um, and so if we want to take the nuclear program uh, away from this regime, or we, we want to um, reduce it to levels that we think are not threatening to us and our allies, um, if we want to weaken uh, Iran in, uh, in Syria, in Lebanon and, and in Iraq, then, uh, then this is a prime opportunity for us. And, and I think we should want those things. Uh, all the people who are calling uh, for uh, aid uh, to, to Iran uh, because of the coronavirus are the same people who were against sanctions before the, uh, be before the coronavirus. If it's just a matter of humanitarian aid, medicine, uh, medical equipment, and so on, there are all kinds of ways uh, to get that to the Iranians without reducing the sanctions and relieving the pressure on the regime. General Kimmett. Yeah, I, I would only make the point that uh, here in Washington, we predicted 25 of the last falls of the Islamic Republic of Iran. We've always got it wrong. My, my touch point has always been, if we couldn't get Venezuela to fall, uh, I don't think that we're in any position, nor is the Islamic Republic in any risk of crumbling anytime soon. Not that I think we should accept that as a given fact. I think we ought to continue to maintain the maximum pressure campaign not to do or try to inspire regime change and simply to get behavior change out of them. Now that may be even harder than regime change, uh, but I just don't see after watching Venezuela and North Korea for so many years that we have a chance of having an autocratic, uh, totalitarian government like we see in Tehran getting overturned by the people. It's just... Oh, I, I, didn't, mean to, I didn't mean to suggest that. Uh, I, I wasn't calling for regime change. Um, and I don't see any sign that, uh, uh, that the regime is about to fall. But yeah. I do think that it's in, a, it's in the worst um, crisis it's been in, and it, it's weakened. Uh, and that uh, it's being forced to take resources away uh, uh, from uh, activities that uh, are threatening to us um, and devote them to simply trying to shore up its legitimacy at home. And that's a good thing for us. Mike, they seem to have enough fuel for their speedboats and enough uh, rocket fuel for their missile programs. So 
Um, I, I would agree that they are having to divert funding from their people, but they don't seem to be unwilling to do that to continue their malign activities in the region, their missile program, or activities in the Persian Gulf that could lead to miscalculation. I think we end up in the same place. It's a very dangerous time for Iran right now. We need to watch it carefully. <clears throat> I wouldn't expect either an external explosion or an internal implosion anytime soon. General, General, actually, my next question was going to be on this. Um, given the sort of recent uh, tensions, at least at the rhetorical re level, over Iranian boats harassing U.S. military in the Gulf, um, there was no serious retaliation after Soleimani's uh, killing, uh, and recent tensions seem to be milder, or at least at the rhetorical remain at the rhetorical level. How do you see, and Rouhani said they wouldn't be the ones starting a conflict in the region. Um, how do you see those ongoing tensions? Would it lead to any kind of serious conflict anytime soon? Yeah, look, I mean, we've said this for a long time. Uh, the Iranian regime may be irrational, but they're not suicidal. Uh, when we uh, killed Soleimani and more importantly, killed Abu Mohandas, um, there was a potential for spiral, spiraling out of control. I'm no fan of the Iranian regime, but I thought that they acted fairly rationally by going after a couple of our bases, such as al-Assad, and then backing off. Uh, but I don't think that that means it's over, because I think now, after they've done the formal retribution by the attack on al-Assad al base, uh, it's clear to me they're continuing to fund, train, and direct uh, Iranian militias around the region, most particularly inside of Iraq. I saw it on my last trip after Suleiman and Phil, um, and the destabilizing, they're, they're just taking a different way to retaliate, uh, one that's not as visible, um, and one that's not as uh, dramatic as they did after Al-Assad. But they're still continuing to take revenge on us, um, just in a different way. Mike? I think it, I think it's a I think that's right, but I think it's important to realize that uh, the United States has has answered every one of the major Iranian initiatives to break the sanctions, um, and in and in doing so, it has it has reduced the um, range of action that the Iranians have. Um, in carrying out retribution against us and, and, and in putting pressure on us. I, I, I think that their strategy back um, in April of last year that they, that they uh, figured on was to raise the threat of war with the United States to such an extent that it would be a political liability to Donald Trump here, here at home. Um, and uh, they're Effort to do that, I think, was foiled at uh, was foiled at each turn. Not necessarily perfectly at each turn, but um, as the U.S. and and Iran went back and forth, um, the U.S. showed an ability to raise the price to Iran for its behavior to such an extent that it had to go back to the uh, it had to go back to the kind of activities now that uh, that Mark just mentioned, ones where it is not uh, where its hands uh, cannot be directly seen. 
um, and where it is not able to create the impression in American domestic politics that uh, that that Trump is taking the um, United States to war, which is what I think their their goal was. Uh, and you see a similar dynamic in Lebanon between the Israelis and the um, between the Israelis and uh, uh, and Hezbollah. You know. Um, it, it, uh, several months back, the Israelis carried out an operation in uh, in 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 downtown Beirut, uh, you know, in in, uh, in Hezbollah's heartland, uh, and uh, Nasrallah can make a lot of noise about it, but he did not uh, carry out such a significant retaliation against Israel that it would actually um, that that it would actually lead to conflict. So I think Nasrallah is kind of in a box too. You notice after Qasem Soleimani was killed, Nasrallah gave a um, uh, a blood, cur blood curdling speech about how Americans were going to go home um, in body bags from uh, the Middle East, but uh, he made it very clear, uh, explicit. And you know, he, he took pains to say, "But the but the arena of conflict is in Iraq." So, in other words, I'm 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 not part of this. Other people are going to be carrying out these uh, um, carrying out these, these these operations. Now, from an American point of view. Um, from an American point of view, that's not ideal uh, by any stretch of the imagination, and it doesn't mean that uh, the Iranians are have been totally deterred by the Qasem Soleimani strike. But it does mean that they have been that their that their range of uh, um, their range of action has been seriously reduced. If I could just make a quick response to that. Uh, I agree yes. with Mike, but I think that we've got to recognize that there is this very almost uh, scripted action counteraction process, which in my mind is is very helpful to stability in the region. As you know, I spend a lot of time in Iraq, most of my time in Iraq, and uh, it's very easy, whether we want to or not, for Iran to be listening in, uh, either because the messages are relayed to them or other ways, but Throughout the last eight months, uh, as they picked up their activities inside of Iraq, in particular, firing rockets around the green zone outside of different facilities in the U.S., um, for which the Iraqis had responsibility for the protection, I kept warning uh, the government officials and the military officials in Iraq, which is, don't confuse restraint with weakness. You can go ahead and make all this noise, but if you kill an American, there will be a response. And that's exactly what they saw. And to that extent, I think we've seen a little bit of red line drawing inside of Iraq. They kind of push, then they pull, then they push until they get a response to that. But now they've gone outside of Iraq for the moment, and it's what I call the three M's. The danger is there. The malign activities throughout the region, you see Zarif sitting down with Assad in, um, inside of Syria. You see the malign activities, so that's the malign activities. You saw the unprecedented missile launch, which was significant because it demonstrated not simply that they have a ballistic missile capability, but now potentially an intercontinental ballistic missile capability. And they have upped the game uh, inside the Persian Gulf, which, uh, this little speedboat bumping has been uh, a significant opportunity for miscalculation. And I applaud the administration for sending back a very clear message that if you keep up, you're pulling it out of the water. So they're probing. Um, I actually think that the Soleimani 
killing was a one-off and they see this as a continued effort at finding out the weak spots in the American strategy. Thank you, General. I want to move on to Syria a little bit. As you all know, Israel, Israel continues some limited military operations in Syria. There was, they're hitting Hezbollah positions in Syria. Uh, Turkey has a serious uh, military presence. Uh, Russia is there. Turkey, Russia cooperate on and off in Idlib. Um, and there's U.S. troops there um, controlling the oil well. Um, uh, so, but, you know, in this environment where economic um, toll of the COVID-19 is so high and the oil prices are so low, uh, will it make sense uh, for the U.S. to continue to be there? Will Trump, say, uh, make another pull-out decision, um, saying that it's not worth being there? Um, Mike? Well, yeah. I, I, don't, I don't know that the, uh, you know, the, the, the real pressure that, that is being felt these days, is, uh, you know, as Mark was describing, is more in Iraq. Um, that than in Syria, um, our presence in in, uh, in in Syria has been relatively cost free. Um, what I would like to have seen in Syria, but I don't think we're going to see it, and certainly not before the election, um, was greater support for Turkey in in Idlib. The uh, uh, to backstop the the Turks against the possibility of. Um, uh, of, of Russian aggression. Um, I argued back when, when the U.S. Uh, pulled back from, uh, in, in, from northeast Syria under pressure from the, uh, from the Turks uh, that uh, it was important to maintain the relationship with Turkey because it could be a counterbalance to the Russian-Iranian um, alliance. Uh, to me, the lesson of the last round of fighting in Idlib is that that is indeed the case. There's um, there are areas where Turkey is cooperating with Russia, but there are lots of areas where, uh, where there's significant friction, um, and that friction works to the advantage of the, uh, of the United States. And I think it um, provides a basis for uh, beginning to arrive at a common strategic picture. This is uh, what's been missing, or, or it's the first step that's missing in, uh, in terms of improving U.S.-Turkish relations is for Ankara and Washington to come to at least a common picture of what we're up against uh, uh, in, in the region. Um, if not a totally shared picture, at least, uh, um, uh, at, at, at least a partially shared picture where we can discuss the issues that we don't, where we can discuss amicably and productively the issues that we don't completely agree on. General, do you have any comments on that? Uh, not really. Uh, Mike and I are probably the only two people in Washington, D.C. that seriously argued the merits of the U.S. forces being withdrawn from Syria. Um, so I would just echo Mike's comment. But I can't for the life of me see why we're going to maintain American soldiers uh, to protect those oil fields now when oil is running at barely the price of a six-pack of Coke per barrel. Yeah. Okay, so I would like to move on to questions. There's uh, several questions. Uh, Mike, uh, 
There was a question about your earlier comments about building a coalition of states, including Turkey, to help preserve the U.S. interests in the region. Um, it seems to me that this is highly unlikely because there are so many issues that keep these allies far from each other rather than closer. Turkey is closer to Russia in Syria and Saudi Arabia, together with the UAE, have been accused of playing with the stability of Turkey. What, what would you say to that? Uh, there's, no, you can't, there's no strategic concept you can have about the Middle East um, that doesn't have a serious contradiction in it. Uh, you know, you, there's, there's no idea that the U.S. could come up with um, that would make sense in the same way to each one of its, uh, to each one of its allies. You have to treat each area of the Middle East, um, you know, as as the United States, as a, as a as a superpower with interests all across the region. You have to treat each area um, as as a as as its kind of own sphere. I mean, I'm saying, you know, the Gulf, the Eastern Med, um, the Northern Middle East, and so on, and then find ways to um, to link them all together. So, what you're what you're doing when you when you try to make a regional strategy is you're you're choosing which contradictions you want to you want to try to deal with. That's what it that that's what it's all about. Choosing the the contradictions. So yes, there are there are going to be there's going to be conflict between serious disagreements between Turkey, Israel, and 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 Saudi Arabia, but that's our that's that's inherent in our relations there anyway. So I, 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 to me, it's not an argument against the, the idea. Um, the, what, what I'm arguing against are, the, are those people in, in, in Washington who are saying that, that the U.S.-Turkish relationship is a thing of the past, or it's not worth investing in, or it's all, uh, uh, all of the tensions that we have with Turkey are the result of actions by the, by the Turks and short-sightedness by the Turks. Um, I think we need to get back to, uh, uh, we, ne we need to get back to, um, uh, uh, to seeing the, ma the major states in the region as the primary, as the primary uh, uh, interlocutors. interlocutors and the primary agents um, of, our, um, of our strategy. And you just, need to look at the, you just need to look at the capabilities that Turkey displayed in Idlib in this last round of fighting to realize how important it is to do that. Thank you. General, do you have comments on that? No, I, I, no, I'd like to hear some other audience questions. Sure. Okay, so um, how can you comment? This is Alexander Hoffman uh, from Strategy Con Center, uh, Russia. How can you comment on the development of Russian-American rivalry in northeastern Syria in the context of a pandemic? Mike? Well, I, uh, I would just continue along the lines of what I, what I was saying. And the, the, um, uh, the, there's a, something of, I don't want to overstate this case, but there's something of a return or, or the, there's movement in the direction of a return to the kind of uh, system we had in the, um, in the, in the 1980s uh, where Russia and Syria were supporting the PKK against, um, against Turkey, and the United States was 
than um, uh, supporting Turkey against the, the PKK. Now, that's a, that's a ridiculous simplification. Uh, but the, um, uh, the, the tensions that have emerged since the U.S. pulled back or, the, or that have, that have um, been highlighted uh, since the U.S. pulled back between Russia and Turkey, I think show that this idea that a lot of people have in Washington that Turkey is now solidly in the, uh, in the Russian camp and, uh, and working against U.S. interests is just um, um, overly simplistic. Thank you. Uh, there is another question. Um, do you think Turkey is a reliable partner to disrupt China's One Belt, One Road in Central Asia and the Middle East? I, I, I guess I would have to ask the fundamental premise of the need to disrupt the Belt and Road Initiative. Um, it's kind of like this foolish notion that we've got to stop the land route between Iran and Syria. I mean, there are 15 different ways that the Iranians can continue their activities without going through the center of Baghdad uh, to do that. The Belt and Road Initiative, if that's seen as a uh, bumper sticker for increasing Chinese influence of all types uh, in the region, uh, I, you know, in fact, if he'd asked the question in light of COVID, I thought, I think that... Uh, we're going to see the Chinese try to overcompensate for the mistakes they made at the beginning of COVID, not only being the, the source of it, but also as they tried to demonstrate the humanitarian actions by sending equipment that was either faulty or didn't work. So they're going to try to overcompensate for that. But the Belt and Road Initiative is a subset of a larger uh, plan and longer term plan of China to establish themselves uh, in a major way, the way the United States has and the way that England, Great Britain had in the last century. So I don't think the question, I don't think the solution to that question is um, as simplistic as people would, would say, but I also would just suggest that uh, this notion of a Chinese monolith that is inexorably uh, taking over large parts of the earth is just incorrect. They've got far more internal problems, I would say, than um, even places such as Iran. And I don't think we need to be as afraid of the Chinese. I think we just need to be able to outsmart the Chinese and in some cases outspend the Chinese. So um, but it goes back to your fundamental question. Where does Turkey fit into that? And um, that's really up to Turkey. Uh, again, this notion that Turkey can either be Chinese, China's friend or America's friend, I think is a false question in the first place. And the whole issue of friends is a false, uh, false model in the second place. Turkey is going to do what's in Turkey's interest, uh, and they're going to pick and choose among their interests and among their allies. So I don't think that there's anything other than by, I don't, and, and I guess I'm rambling on, but what I think I'm trying to suggest is no matter how we improve our formerly very strong relationships with Turkey, uh, it's not a zero-sum game. More co-sharing of interests with the Turks does not mean less co-sharing of Turkey's interests with China. So I think we just need to fight it 
and or I should say, I think we just need to figure out how to compete with that. And Turkey plays a part in that. But Turkey has interests of its own that we can't control and making demands is something that uh, would be foolish in this case. I, uh, I think that last uh, statement of, of Marx is the, is the key one where, where he said, figuring out how to compete. Um, we, we have a lot of really hard intellectual work to do um, in the coming year, coming years even, um, in uh, defining, better defining for ourselves the nature of the competition that we're in with China and, dis and deciding what the arena, where the, where the major arenas are in, in, in which we're going to pursue that, pursue that competition. Uh, you know, the Chinese take, for instance, uh, commercial drones, the, the Chinese uh, dominate the commercial drone uh, market uh, in, in the Middle East. Um, they adopted that position or they, they achieved that position. I don't think with any competition from the United States uh, and uh, the um, U.S. as far as I know, I, I'm, I'm a hesitate before I say this, but I, I don't think we have a policy, a clear policy on it at all. Um, I would think that that's an area where we and our allies would actually want to be competing with the, uh, with the Chinese. But at this stage, there's no, there's no policy. So w once we once we are better, once we have it clearer in our minds of what the nature of the, of the competition with the Chinese is, well, then perhaps there is a significant role um, for U.S.-Turkish uh, relations in, in that competition. But I do agree with Mark. I mean, there's no, look, at the, the, China is now the number one uh, trade partner with Saudi Arabia, which is also an ally of the, with, with the United States. Um, there's no way that the United States can stop um, its allies in the region from having um, productive relations with China in, um, in many areas, particularly uh, economic. Um, the key for us is to decide where are our red lines with regard to China um, and, how, uh, uh, and how are we going to um, impose those red lines and who can be the best allies uh, with us in, in doing that. Um, but I, I also wonder, and this is another area where I just don't know, I mean, again, there's some very serious intellectual work that has to be done. But I, I think that this issue of supply chains out of China is a, is a serious one. And we're going to want to, we, we allowed so much of our um, industrial product to move to, our uh, industrial production to move to China without thinking about the strategic implications. And I would think that we would now want to diversify that, uh, move a lot of that back to the United States where possible. Uh, but maybe turn to other partners. And I, I wonder if, if Turkey actually um, in, in, a number of, uh, in a number of areas couldn't be a very vital partner for the United States. I know Trump has put out the $100 billion number in, uh, in bilateral trade. Um, uh, it seems to me that that uh, $100 billion number, which we've always known is aspirational uh, and, and as much a statement of goodwill and intentions as a real true aim, uh, but in light of the the rising competition with China, I don't I, I don't see why that number shouldn't why why our aspiration uh, shouldn't um, uh, shouldn't be redoubled. Thank you, Mike. Uh, you've already answered two questions I had. Uh, one was about uh, you China. Um, you know, there was because of 
Trump's um, uh, additional um, tariffs. Uh, already some production were moving to other Asian countries. Uh, uh, sometimes they were simply Chinese companies, but relocating uh, or putting a stamp on another country. But uh, in the wake of the COVID-19, uh, we saw that Turkey, the US had such a hard time uh, produ producing some of the medical supplies uh, and Turkey kept producing and they've also exported some to the US as well. Um, the other question was about uh, China's sort of what arenas, what countries in the region that US would compete with China, but I think you both answered that. Uh, one last question, uh, perhaps. Uh, elections, obviously, uh, November. A Biden administration, potential theoretical Biden administration, how would that affect US uh, Middle East uh, policy, do you think? I'll take on that one first. Uh, a quick aside uh, to this notion of patriotic uh, repatriation of our supply chains. You know, I think that's going to last for about a year. I think that everybody's waving the flag right now and saying we need to get this done because we can't be dependent upon um, Chinese supply chains. A year from now, Wall Street and the owners of these companies are going to start pushing hard for higher profits. And they're going to make the same decisions, in my mind, uh, that they made when they started moving uh, factories out of Middletown and into the middle of China. Uh, the, the economic pressure to squeeze, the, the very nature of the capitalist system is to squeeze as much profit as you can, and if it can't be made here, um, and that's, that's the fundamental nature of free trade. Um, what was your last question, though, because I wanted to answer. Biden, Biden. Oh, Biden. Look, I, Mike can correct me and, and can or and add to it, but I think we're just going to see Obama redux the very same people that we saw running around during the Obama administration, running the foreign policy establishment, the defense establishment, my sensing is by and large, they'll be coming back. Uh, in the Middle East, I think we're going to see the same mistake made by the Biden administration on day one that the Obama administration did, which is they're going to try to, uh, they're not only going to try to reestablish the, the climate um, agreement that we have with the rest of the world, but I think we're going to crawl back to Tehran and try to patch together the JCPOA again. That would be, and then, and then try to deal with the consequences of what that means, the, the second and third order effects of what that means to our Arab allies and, and uh, our Israeli allies in the region. But they seem to, you know, this crowd was the one that uh, negotiated it, and I also think it's going to be the crowd that tries to bring it back in the interests of the world. I, I basically, I basically agree with that, um, with that analysis. Uh, just make one little um, uh, footnote to it, which is that I, I do think that, um, that Trump has destroyed um, a large number of the, of the arguments that the Obama team made for the thawing of relations with Iran or for the, for the JCPOA. Um, you know, uh, arguments such as um, we can't 
we can't continue the sanctions regime because the rest of the world won't let us and we'll be isolated in the world if we do that. Um, and the sanctions will fray. Uh, and there was a, a general um, elevation of the Iranian threat. Remember the choice that, the, that we supposedly faced was between uh, continuing the sanctions, which were gonna erode and war with, with, with Iran. Uh, and I think Trump has shown, uh, Trump better than, than you know, any president um, that I can remember, has, has understood the true size of the Iranian problem. Um, Iran, is a, Iran is a serious threat to the interests of the United States in, in the region. It's the most serious threat. It has real capabilities and it can cause us um, it can cause us a lot of damage, and and it can and it can erode our alliances if we don't pay attention to what Iran is up to. But we are significantly stronger than 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 the Iranians. I mean, they they benefit from our inattention to the conflict, which they're focused on uh, all the time. So it, what's really hard, and and I, I think you saw this in the in the back and forth between me and Mark at the beginning. It's really hard to address the, 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 the strengths of the Iranian regime without, uh, without making them sound like, without making it sound like you think they're stronger than they actually are, and the weaknesses without making it sound like you think that they're nothing or about to collapse and so on. They're, they're, they have very serious capabilities which can cause us pain, but they're also, we are also a lot stronger than they are. And I yeah. think Mike, and I, Mike, I would only make Mike, I'd only make one comment. I don't think it's an issue of strong or weak. It's an issue of resilient. And you can be strong and resilient, you can be weak and resilient, but Iran is resilient. No, sure, certainly it's resilient. I'm not I'm not trying to re I'm not trying to go back and forth with you on that on that issue anymore. I was just I was just trying to make the point that I think Trump has has taught uh, American public opinion. Uh, a lesson about the power differential. And so if, if, if the, re the reason I'm saying that is that if Biden comes back in and wants to just go back to the, to, to the JCPOA, I think, it will be, I, I think it will be obvious to a lot of people that we have more options, that that isn't, that isn't what we have to do. Um, and we have more options and more leverage over Iran than, than the Obama administration led us to believe that we had. Um, so, but I do agree with, with, with Mark that, um, that the, the basic picture of the Middle East that Biden has is the Obama picture. And that's the one that's very distrustful of our traditional allies, Israel, Turkey, and, 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 and Saudi Arabia, and very desirous of the outreach to Tehran. As crazy as I think that sounds, that's the way they see the world. Thank you. Believe and willing to believe that people will change their behavior by good acts on our part. Right. Right. There's one more question, but that's about something that I raised. Uh, the question is, do we have confirmation that the medical supplies Turkey sent to the U.S. have started to be used? I remember that the testing kits were seeking FDA approval a couple of weeks ago, but I'm unsure if they've been approved and now in distribution. I honestly don't know if you know that procedure how it works uh but turkey has been sending to some uh, medical supplies to some 50 countries including the us uh that was my point about mike brought up 
production uh, base uh, sort of shifting away from China, Turkey as a possibility. In that context, I brought it up. But um, if anybody knows if they've got the FDA approval, FDA approves these things pretty fast these days, I guess, because of the emergency situation. But uh, I don't know specifically. Fast is relative for FDA approval. <laughs> exactly. I just want to uh, allow you to, um, okay, one more, actually one more question. How do you assess the threat of social destabilization in Jordan caused by the aftermath of the pandemic and possible U.S. actions? That's one for Mark. I'm, uh, yeah. I'm out of touch. Again, it's, it, people have, have predicted the fall of the Hashemite uh, kingdom um, for years and years, and it seems to be, even though the, the, the quote, Jordanians, the Hashemites, are a very small minority inside of, um, inside of Jordan, they've been amazingly resilient, primarily because whether it's the Iraqi expats or the Palestinian expats, uh, revolution may sound good in the coffee houses, but they know they've got a much better deal inside of Jordan than they could get anywhere else in the region. So I think it's something that uh, I think that's something that always needs to be kept in mind. But I, I think that uh, sane groups inside of Jordan that are not part of the of the family understand that. Uh, you know, let's not cut our nose off to spite our face. Thank you. Thank you, General. Um, if you have additional comments, I want to give you a moment for that, but otherwise we'll end here. No, I just uh, always enjoy being with Mike Duran. He's, he's uh, one of the smartest guys I know, and he's one of the most enjoyable people to be around when we're not in the uh, think tank mode. I got a lot of respect for his intellect and his writings. Thank you so much, General. Thank you very much, Mike. Thank you, and I uh, share all of those uh, sentiments. I'm I'm really a fantastic person to be around, and uh, <laughs> you know, the more you can do it, the better. That's why we have you. <laughs> That's why we have you, Mike. Thank you so much uh, for being part of this discussion, uh, this webinar on the U.S policy in the Middle East in the age of coronavirus. As I mentioned at the beginning, we will continue organizing these webinars on the U.S. foreign policy, U.S. global role going forward. Uh, keep following us. Uh, please join me in thanking our panel uh, virtually. You could clap. We won't hear it, but uh, thank you so much, everyone. <laughs> thank you, Kadir. It was a, it was a pleasure being here. Thank, Thank you. you. A real pleasure. Right. Take care. Right. Bye. -bye.